Good afternoon. Please do turn to Matthew chapter 5. We will read um, several passages in succession as uh, we seek to conclude uh, the matter to do with divorce and remarriage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. And then we will go to chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. Uh, just for those of you that may have heard, uh, Dollar Baptist District ZBA runs a radio program today. And when you see me rush out at about 18.20, it's because I've been asked to preach uh, for the coming uh, period, probably two months or so. Uh, so if you park, just direct my vehicle, you do want to give me space as quickly as you can if I am to be faithful with timekeeping. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries her, and whoever marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Chapter 19. Verse 1 to 10. Chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the large, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Same story without the exception close. Let's pick up reading from verse 5 of Mark chapter 10. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 18. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In seeking to answer the question of divorce and remarriage, I indicated from what I called theological perspective where the predominant views are communicated and that there are four predominant views. First of those views we indicated is simply no divorce, no remarriage. Don't think about it, don't even entertain the business of remarriage. The second position is yes, there is divorce, but there's no remarriage for whatever reason. Yes, there is divorce, but then no remarriage for whatever reason. Third position, there is divorce, and there is remarriage only for adultery and desertion. Only for adultery and desertion can one remarry and can one divorce. Fourth position, there is divorce for any reason as the church judges would be the implication, and there is remarriage for each and every reason for divorce. So there is divorce and remarriage under a variety of circumstances. Not only sexual immorality, arguably desertion, for a whole plethora of circumstances. That it's important at this context to deal with the elimination method the elimination method is that obviously uh, whatever the arguments would be provided, reason number one is wrong. There is very clear evidence in the scriptures that there is reason for divorce. Uh, there is reason for divorce. To argue no divorce under whatever circumstances will be refusal of Deuteronomy 24, refusal of Jeremiah chapter 3 we read if you read verse 1. A denial of Matthew and the other verses that are there. But by elimination method, the third reason always must be gotten rid of. Uh, that position is called liberalism. Uh, you cannot simply say there is divorce for any or a whole bunch of reasons and there is remarriage for a whole bunch of them it will be clearly to refuse the testimony of Scripture. Uh, the testimony of Scripture limits 
the reasons for divorce, and if there is remarriage, it limits uh, in what situations remarriage must take place. So that we basically have two positions with which to wrestle, and therefore to give ourselves uh, a position and with which the elders wrestled and came to some conclusion. And the two positions are basically divorce but no remarriage, or divorce and remarriage when it's adultery or desertion. Those were views given, narrowed down. Those are the two views we will be focusing on this evening. But regarding the subject matter, it doesn't matter what your conclusion will be. At the very least, you will make some people in the local church uncomfortable. It doesn't matter what position uh, I will take, the elders will take, anyone will take, that some among us will probably be unsettled. At the very worst, some will be offended that you can even think of such a position. My prayer is that if you are unsettled, that's understandable. If you are grossly offended, uh, it's important to talk uh, rather than to make it a source of gossip. That would be terribly a dangerous direction to go. So if you are grossly offended by the position from the eldership, please see the elders and we will give a detailed reason why we came to such a conclusion or to such conclusions. So the main passages regarding this subject matter is Matthew 5, as we've read from the Sermon 19, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians, and that is which is straightforward, Romans 7, and obviously in the context of the Genesis passages and the Mosaic, uh, rightly God's uh, instructions through Moses. In doing this, we must begin with again underlining the question that neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament is divorce commanded. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament is divorce commanded. The biblical ideal, the biblical standard, the biblical expectation is that you will work on your marriages in such a way but even in the worst of times, you will not be thinking divorce. You'll be thinking, let's work this thing out with God's help and honor him in the context of marriage. That's important, uh, please, to understand. Like I stated this morning, secondly, that both in the Old Testament and in the New, and I'm being deliberate because sometimes we make a dichotomy, and it's a false dichotomy that the, New, the Old Testament says something and the New Testament says something completely or contradictory to the Old. No, they don't. The second principle to observe is that both the Old and the New are basically restrictive as opposed to permissive. They are dealing with abuses in the context of chaos 
And in that context, God comes through his servants and says, this chaos must be ordered. Something in the context of the hardness of human heart, there must be order and therefore there must be restriction. So the regulations are not basically saying, just go out and do this. The regulations are provided to restrict, to make it difficult to go the other way, even though it's permitted, but to go the genesis. Marriage is permanent and it's intended to be like that. Thirdly, that this at the end of the day, issues of divorce and if there is remarriage are primarily personal matters. Primarily personal matters. Need to say this ahead of time before when you get to, into the thing, you forget things. Here is what this implies. If you will come to the elders with the statement that says, I want to divorce my husband, what do you think as elders? Our answer will be, let's try and work your marriage. We will never say to you, just go ahead and divorce your wife or your husband. We will never do that. So we'll never give you permission in that sense uh, to simply green light divorce. It's a personal matter uh, that if you insist, we'll give you the biblical positions and leave you to make the decision. And if the decision is in our understanding biblical, we'll work with you uh, to see how the situation can be salvaged. In other words, our position would be if you have a son who is not married and a daughter who is not married and they say to you, I want to have a child, every parent will say no. But once they have a child, well, the, the focus changes. Uh, the focus changes and that would be a perspective. Now that's an illustration, so don't push the illustration uh, to its limits. It's simply an illustration. In that context then, what divorces where and are biblically permitted. If there is divorce in the scriptures, what divorces were and are biblically permitted? It is important to say here that there is sin behind every divorce as its cause. Every single divorce is because of sin. Not every divorce is sinful to all the parties involved. Several times it is sinful to only one party. The cause of every divorce is sin. But not all the time are both parties guilty of sin. Many a time there is what is called an innocent party. And as we read Deuteronomy 24, I'll ask you to turn there. It will be playing a pivotal role in our dealing with Matthew 5, 31, 32, 19, 1 to 12. Deuteronomy 24. Verse 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. The context of Deuteronomy, the restrictive sense which was abused, Moses or God through Moses basically says, here is what must happen. When you find your wife unfavorable in your own eyes, in other words, you must prove that, that this is your perception of your wife. So Moses is saying, prove, one, that situation. Secondly, or you found some indecency in her. Prove the indecency that you found in your wife, where you do not end there, where you must write her a certificate of divorce. So, And the certificate of divorce has a certain wording. And when you do that, place that in her hands and send her out of your house. Then you will have divorced your wife. You've messed yourselves so much that even to create these restrictive regulations, it's shameful. But when it comes to this, here are the things and the requirements on which the divorce that you must as it were in the context of your mess. These are the things you must do. Oh, but guess what? Once she's out of your house, she gets married to a second man. And the second man also discovers the same. Or he dies. You cannot marry your wife again. Third implication is this. Marriage is not just about going in and out. This is a serious business, and so is divorce. Once you're done with this, please do know that you're not thinking again, I'll go back to my wife. If you do want, do it quickly before she gets married to somebody else. It's restrictive. It is restrictive. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, was intended to strictly regulate man's rebellion against God's purpose in marriage. But it was distorted to provide an excuse for divorce. That when we come into the question regarding Matthew 19, that regulation is completely distorted. That regulation is basically thinking in one school. That basically was saying divorce for any reason and any cause. And that's the question before Christ. Is it lawful for someone to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And that's the question Jesus is answering. Please, when we come to Matthew 19, have in mind the question. Uh, sometimes it's interesting how our positions 
blind us even to the text. Please, when we come to Matthew 19, have that question in mind. And it's a question that's reflecting how Deuteronomy has been abused to accommodate every indecency and every disfavor and women are being divorced right, left, and center. And Jesus is going to provide even what we may call stricter in the context again of human sinfulness. The hard hearts that this law was meant to restrain used it to their own ends. Notice firstly that the Mosaic law limited divorce only to some causes, some grounds, some reasons. Even in the Mosaic context, you didn't divorce your wife for any and every reason. There were some reasons that were not legitimate reasons for divorce. Secondly, that the Mosaic law obligated the man who divorced his wife to clear her name, to protect her life, and to safeguard her livelihood. The reason they wrote a certificate is that one of the things that certificate did was to state the reason for the divorce. Divorce this woman because she cannot cook properly. So that the next suitor knows why this particular woman was divorced. That it was not because she was being unfaithful, it is not because she was committing gross things. It's because of this triviality that the irresponsible man divorced her. In other words, it will make her eligible for another man to say, look, I understand the reason, but I don't think they matter to me. To protect her life, because if she's accused of adultery, he's basically sentencing her to death. What he could not do in that certificate is I'm divorcing her because she's an adulteress. She will be killed. She, he must safeguard her livelihood because in the context of the Jewish life, women's livelihood depended almost entirely on men. And that is part of the reason they were treated as property. That is why Pharisees would pray, thank God I am not a Gentile, but thank God I'm not a woman. This man who's going to divorce the wife must ensure that she is not subjected to perpetual poverty because of some wrongful reasons he's advanced for sending her out of his house. Thirdly, the divorced woman in Deuteronomy 24, was allowed to remarry. By implication, the man who divorced her remarried. Remarried. Notice in the context, when she gets married to the second man and he dies and or he divorces her, so she is permitted. One of the things that certificate announced was the marriage bond has been dissolved. The marriage commitments have been nullified. The covenant has been annulled. 
She is up for a second commitment. So the man who is remarrying this one in the context of Deuteronomy is not committing adultery. It's permissible, but not commanded. The divorced woman was allowed to remarry. The certificate of divorcement was primarily for that reason, but could not be married to his first husband after the second, and the man who divorced obviously remarried, but Moses was more concerned about the innocent party, not the perpetrator of injustice. And as you read the Lord Jesus Christ in that context in Matthew, his focus is on the innocent. Because the one who's done the wrong, except on this ground, is already chosen to live a life of sin. And the injunction to them is to repent. So the first reason for divorce is as stipulated in Exodus in that context. But secondly, as you read Matthew 5.32, 19, 3 to 10, it's adultery or fornication or sexual perversions. Maritual unfaithfulness. Our Savior is categorical. Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Listen to the question in that passage. Verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus, the implication of the question is this. We know that there are certain reasons for divorce, but that's not our concern. Can somebody divorce the wife for any reason? Because that's where they are. And there were two teachers during that time. One of them taught exactly this. You could divorce your wife for any reason. One of them said you couldn't. So what they are doing regarding the question is basically to say to Jesus, who do you side with? This guy who is conservative or the liberal guy? But notice the context also. This is a trap because John the Baptist has just been killed. And John the Baptist has been killed because he confronted a ruler and told the ruler, divorce your wife. So the question is a trap in that, let's hear if you don't obey this, offend this guy. And whichever answer Jesus will give, whether it's going to be this side or this side, there will be people that will be offended. And the man in authority, the king or emperor or the tetrarch will be offended and Jesus will be accused of being partisan. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus refused to side with any of the two schools of thought. Instead, he says to them, let's go back to the ideal. In other words, you've missed the point. You've jumped to the abuses and have ignored God's ideal standard for humanity. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And when he states this, it's almost now they are saying, okay, he is very shrewd. I'm not sure they will call him wise. 
He's very, he's very scheming. He's evaded the question. Let's put it up to him. They say to him, verse 5, Well, if this is what you said, well, then Moses surely must have been in the wrong. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? In other words, why did Moses permit divorce in certain situations? And his answer, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed it. Verse 10, well, verse 9. Remember the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? After pointing to the scriptures, showing them the reason why Moses did, Jesus gives what we would call an authoritative statement. Jesus in that statement is basically saying, now as God, here is what I am telling you, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Can man, woman, divorce, wife, husband, for any and every reason? No. Except one. Except one. So adultery or fornication or sexual perversions, because the word used there, ponia, includes all sexual perversions. And Jesus is saying, on that ground, you may. Notice that Matthew 5, 31, 32, and 19, 3 to 19, are about women protection and uh, pivotal passages together with 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, that some theologians, scholars, pastors, Christians argue divorce and remarriage from. What is meant by sexual immorality? You can do that in your own time. The third reason for divorce is abandonment. Abandonment or desertion by a non-believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Simply stating reasons for divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10 to 15. The married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What is the other ground of divorce? And the word used there for separation is not the current exercise of separation. I'm not sure where I stated this. There is no separation as practiced in the world today by law. 
uh, in the scriptures, there are only two positions. Divorce or marriage. There is no in-between. So the separation is basically putting away. Uh, that's the terminology the Apostle Paul uses there. Uh, the current laws in Zambia says if you're on separation for two years, uh, then you legal after that divorced. The scripture has no that period. If you want to divorce, start that. Uh, otherwise, work towards reconciliation. Uh, there is no in-between. So the third ground is abandonment or desertion, the unbelieving. Now notice again the Apostle Paul's emphasis in First Corinthians. is simply this, that the Christian or the person who is an unbeliever and in the unbelieving world you divorce for every and any reason, may come to Christianity with that mindset. And so the question is posed, what if I am saved and my wife is not? Or what if I'm saved as a wife, my husband is not? You know, that, that is a terrible existence. Light and darkness in the extreme language. Surely the Bible should permit the exclusion of this union. And the Bible's position is simply this, no. If you are a Christian, you, you became a Christian when you are not saved or you disobeyed God and you married a non-Christian, once you do that, you have no prerogative to stop the marriage. The only thing, and it's a wrong prayer, you should pray for is that this unbelieving leaves you or at the very worst, they die. It's inhuman to think like that. That's really the thrust it's again in the context of don't divorce. And that is the biblical thrust. The above three are clearly indisputable grounds on which legit legitimate divorce must be entered in if you choose to. The above causes, while they are just grounds, they are not automatic grounds for divorce. Reconciliation forgiveness, restoration, rebuilding must be pursued, even in the worst case. The unfaithfulness of one of the spouses does not necessarily mean that the marriage must end in divorce because the scriptures still command us forgive. As many times as the person comes to you that's your wife, your husband, even the worst of sins, if you may call it that, sexual immorality. When they apologize and you sincerely hear them, even if, I hope not, they, they commit it ten times. They apologize. Biblical expectation is that you will forgive them. It's absolutely important not to miss the Savior's purpose in Matthew 5, 31 and 19, that the teachings in these verses are corrective on divorce on demand. You can't just divorce as long as you like it, and the Savior is correcting that. Divorce on any unbiblical reason complicates sin instead of curing it and may implicate others rather than absolve them. When you divorce for wrong reasons, you're not only any person involved, you're causing others to sin. And in this passage, if you are the husband who's divorced the wife for unjustifiable means, when she marries, the Bible says you've caused her 
you've made her commit adultery. And the gentleman who marries her, you'll have caused him to commit adultery. Complicated the situation and made many, instead of being excused, they become guilty because of your actions. So to divorce illegitimately causes both parties, if they do enter a new marriage, to commit adultery. To divorce illegitimately causes both parties, if they do enter a new marriage, to commit adultery. Very quickly, what is divorce? Jay Adams defines divorce as the divorce is the repudiation and breaking off that covenant or agreement, pledge, promise, or bond in which both parties provided companionship in all its ramifications for one another. A divorce is in effect a declaration that these promises are no longer expected, are no longer required, are no longer to be adhered to. Divorce carries the sense of cut off, to lose from, to put from, to put away, send, release, or dismiss. It is a severing of the covenant relationship that previously existed. In the light of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, as a preliminary observation, the obliteration of these obligations is intended to free the parties to make the same commitment to someone else. When you read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 to 4, you can't miss that. The reason for the certificate of divorce was to free the person from this commitment to this individual and commit themselves to another one. That's the context of Deuteronomy 24. When a divorce is biblically proper, that's also what it does. When a divorce is biblically proper, that's also what it does. The exception closed there. We need to acknowledge here in Matthew 19 that Jesus, that just as the time, at the time Jesus was dealing with this question, it is likely that whatever he said and whatever position he was to take, divorce or remarriage, someone will not agree, and he provided a position anyway. But it's also important to understand that Matthew 19 has Deuteronomy 24 as its background. Matthew 19, and the question posed, has Deuteronomy 24 as its background. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They will have Deuteronomy abused. When Jesus provides a response, they still bring in Deuteronomy verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? It's Deuteronomy 24. That's where the Pharisees are coming from. And our Savior, in answering the question, has that in mind? He has that in mind that it permitted many other reasons, and it's those reasons that would be restricted. It's those reasons that were abused. And our Savior, in answering the question, reduces it to one reason. The implication of the language is that it assumes what was true in Deuteronomy 24. 
if divorce is to happen, it assumes Deuteronomy 24 as being true. What happened there would happen in a legitimate divorce situation. The concept that a passage, uh, here are some arguments that are used to diffuse Matthew 19, uh, the exception clause, and Matthew 5. People say, and when you read commentaries, to remove this, because Mark didn't say this, because Luke didn't say this, then obviously Matthew is wrong. So they say, no, Matthew is saying this because he's accommodating a current practice that was happening. So this is actually an insertion in the text. In other words, these are words placed on the mouth of Christ. He didn't say them. Problem is, Matthew says it twice. Sermon on the Mount, and in the context of the Pharisees asking the question. Secondly, it's argued that Mark and Luke must be the parent passages. They must be the primary passages we must focus on and therefore interpret Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 in light of Mark and Luke. Well, when you read biblical interpretation, the principle is this. You interpret the shorter passage in the context of a fuller one. It's the fuller passage that helps you to understand the shorter passage. You do not interpret the fuller passage by using the shorter one. That's not faithful biblical exegesis. So you cannot say, uh, whatever Matthew means, it must be what Mark. Rather the thinking and biblical reasoning is this, and we can demonstrate this. One of the things you may want to do is just read Mark, focus on the miracles, and compare to Matthew's record and Luke's record. You will notice that in most cases, the records of Matthew are fuller than Mark. The sense you get in Mark that he's in a hurry to make a point. He's presenting Christ in some light and is not giving a fuller. So you cannot say, because the miracle here is shorter, the records in Matthew must be truncated. That's wrong thinking. Well, maybe change, change the phrasing. That's not exercising faithful biblical interpretation. It's, it's doing this. You have a witness who gives a full testimony. And you have one who summarizes the testimony. You do not interpret the fuller on the summary. You interpret the summary on the basis of the full testimony. So that if there is something you do not understand in the summary, go to the full text. It will enable you to understand. So the concept that a passage which does not give an exception may be considered as denying an exception, there is another argument that because Mark and Luke do not include the exception, they refuse the exception. They are basically saying the exception is not true. It's again a questionable biblical conclusion. Rather, what is to be understood and in faithful biblical understanding is that the shorter passage that has no exception, the understanding is that it assumes it. 
it simply takes it for granted that this is true and there is no reason to elaborate. It's speaking like this. You are here at Indola Baptist Church and we announce there is going to be a baptism next Sunday. What kind of baptism do we expect? Sprinkling? In this context? If I say our baptism per Sunday, we expect sprinkling? No, we don't. So when we write in our statements, we baptize nine people, you cannot say because we didn't elaborate what we mean by baptism, well, it means it's sprinkling. No, it simply assumes that these are Baptists. And when they discuss baptism, this is what it means. It also means in this local church that when people are accepted in membership, that they are saved. That's the assumption. So you do not go arguing, no, they are accepted, you know, they are saved. No, no, no. And that's the basis of Mark in relation to Matthew. Okay, uh, time is running away. Uh, if there will be questions, we can pick up later. With those arguments stated then, the implication of Matthew 19, verse 3 to 10, is that if divorce is permitted based on sexual immorality, the innocent party is permitted to remarry. If divorce is permitted based on sexual immorality, the implication of Matthew 5, verse 32, Matthew 19, in the exception clause, is that what is assumed and explicitly stated in Deuteronomy is assumed here, that that would happen. The reason it doesn't focus on the offending party, they will have broken the rule. They will have already, in some sense, if they have committed adultery, married. So you're not going to focus on whether, but what about the one who has committed adultery? They have done what they shouldn't have. But what about the innocent one? Except, except on sexual immorality. A conviction in examining the desertion clause is that you need to import in that exertion clause to with a full conscience say even Paul is saying you can remarry. Uh, you, you, look, you can consider the text, but you come to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, even the Apostle Paul is saying you can remarry, it's to place on the Apostle Paul's lips what he's actually not focusing on. The Apostle Paul's focus is in the context of if I'm a Christian, married to a non-Christian, they are terribly unreasonable, can I divorce them? The Apostle Paul is, no, you can't. You do not have the liberty. If they leave, we are not enslaved to remain in a marriage that they are not willing to remain in because we are called to peace. You need to deal with what is the peace implied in that text. So that if you came to us as an eldership in a conviction from 1 Corinthians and say, my husband was not a Christian, he's left, can I remarry? Would say, we're not convinced that the biblical permits it. We're not convinced. 
What therefore is a position simply this. There is only one legitimate reason for divorcing the scriptures. And that legitimate reason permits the innocent party to remarry. It is sexual immorality. If you read Martin Lloyd-Jones, that was his position. So we are in that school. John Stott is non-committal, as usual. Uh, read many. Uh, he, he's, he's, I don't want to get into this mess. I don't go there. Uh, but many uh, would fall in that category. What is indisputable is that there is divorce in the context of sexual immorality and the innocent party is permitted to remarry. But let me close with this. All these statements are restrictive. The Bible records very clearly God hates divorce. These statements are given in a context that should make us work at our marriages. The statements are not given so that every come a small thing, we're just waiting for the trap. So if you are a wife, you begin to do certain things that you tempt your husband to do something. If you are a husband, you begin to do certain things that will compel your wife to, and then you say, you see, she's done, he's done. That's not the sense of these passages. But again, the sin of adultery, sexual sin is not unpardonable sin. God forgives it, so should we. The Bible is not saying simply because there is sexual sin, therefore divorce. No, the Bible is saying, please work at your marriages. Let, if anything, that sleep or mess or misstep be the reason you consolidate your marriage. So please, I beg you. I beg you on behalf of the elders, don't place us in a situation with debating your remarriage. Don't place us there. Work at your marriage. Place us in a situation where we'll come alongside you and ensure that your marriage will succeed. So that the only reason we should come to the extreme is because all avenues possible have failed. And we rarely get there. May God grant that we'll pursue righteousness even in our marriages. Amen.